our study in Romans. We've not been here for a little bit, so let's open up to Romans chapter 4. Uh, Bible in hand, ready to go. Maybe you've got a great cup of coffee ready. I do. You know, we've never had sponsorships on this uh, podcast, but uh, if a good coffee company ever decides they want to start sending us free bags, I'm in. Okay, so uh, anyway, so uh, Romans chapter 4. We finished up with verse 12 last time. And as we're making our way through, um, let me just encourage uh, all of y'all who are reading through the book of Romans and studying through it with us to recognize the the wonderful, rich, devotional quality of the book of Romans. Uh, we study the book of Romans oftentimes for its deep theological um, truth, uh, treatises, explanations, discussions. Uh, Paul talks about some of the loftiest things we find in all of Scripture here in this book. Uh, and as a result of that, there is this wonderful devotional element to it where when we consider uh, the depth of some of these discussions and the and how deep the thinking goes on this, uh, it engages our minds and begins to flood our hearts with a sense that, wow, these are magnificent truths. These are deep realities within the Scripture that... Uh, help us to understand, um, gosh, I mean, just on the surface of it, grace. But what about the character and nature of God uh, in in the pervasiveness of grace that is given to us? Um, to think of, of the fact that we are saved by grace through, you know, just by virtue of receiving it by faith, and it has nothing to do with the works and efforts that we have. That's a mind-bending reality that grates so far against anything that our flesh tries to uh, put forth as a, as a means of being right with God. And the book of Romans just goes to such lengths with such eloquence and depth to explain the beauty of the grace of God that is unmerited completely. Uh, breathtaking truth. Not just the explanations are breathtaking, but when you finally really get to that place where you think, there is not a single thing that I can do to earn God's grace. That is the most liberating freeing thing that there is because it breaks us from our pride and divorces us from that which is deep within us saying, no, I've got to be able to say I earned it somehow. Oh, it's like stamping out um, a virus, you know, if I can borrow from today's vernacular in that. It's like extinguishing a fire that would rage through a house to destroy it. It actually extinguishes it and saves it uh, so that we can see it for what it's supposed to be. It's just this wonderful, beautiful truth. But the book of Romans is is that way. And so uh, we're studying through it and we're talking about some of the theological points as we make our way through. We're building the arguments and or l- learning from the arguments that Paul is building. Um, and along the way, uh, let's also recognize, again, the beauty of, of these truths, just the sheer beauty of the truths themselves and the God who gave them to us. So anyway, that being said, in verse 13 of chapter 4, Paul says that for the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now this idea of Abraham being told that he would be an heir of the world, the idea is that um, his offspring, his children who would be born to him, uh, father of many nations, as God uh, promises him in places again like Genesis 12. Always keep yourself familiar when it comes to questions of the promises made to Abraham and to Israel and those kinds of things. Always remember Genesis 12, 15, 17, and, 
and passages that would relate to those. But the point Paul is making here in verse 13 is really a continuation of where we left off last time in the previous uh, passages dealing with this. I'll commend you to go ahead and and watch or listen to those uh, so we don't do lots and lots of review. But in short, what Paul is saying here in verse 13 is something he's been saying uh, more broadly explaining previously, but it's the idea that Abraham was not given this promise by the law, but rather by faith, okay? Through the righteousness that is of faith or by faith. It is through faith. Uh, it is received by faith. Uh, now, that's true for two reasons. Number one, because the law wasn't given during the time of Abraham. When was it given? That's right, under Moses, 400 years later. So Abraham, who is the father of the Hebrew people, is justified by faith and becomes God's means through which he would bring this uh, the Messiah into the world, but brings this truth into the world. Abraham is chosen by, by God's grace purely. He didn't, he didn't obey. There was no law for him to obey. And so he is saved by faith, essentially. And so Paul makes the argument here, sort of, this is sort of like a, a, a milestone in the discussion. I say a capstone, but the whole book deals with this topic. But it's, it's like another milestone in the journey to understanding where this, this, it's, it's, it couldn't have been by the law because there was no law. But secondly, the argument is that it is by faith because it cannot be of the law. Uh, And he'll go on to explain what that means here in the verses that follow. So in verse 14, For if those who are of the law are heirs, then faith is made void and the promise is made of no effect. So for those, both in Paul's time, which would be Israel holding to the law, thinking that's their means of righteousness, or whether it was the Judaizers, those who were trying to bring those who had come by faith back under the law, or, frankly, whether whether it's anybody today who would be um, trying to somehow blend grace with works of the law and say, well, yeah, it's by grace, but we need to do this in order to appropriate that grace or something like that. Paul would say, no, if this was by the law, then you've nullified faith. In other words, there is no blending of these two things. They are distinct and separate ideas. And one, the law, leads us to understand our need for and look for the person who, who appropriated for us that grace. And so uh, it makes the promise of no effect. In other words, the promise that God made Abraham is nullified if, in fact, you could earn righteousness by the law. Because, and Paul goes on to explain why, because the law brings about wrath. That's all it can bring. Okay, Paul is just saying matter-of-factly, the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, here's something else to think about. The law brings about wrath. Okay, now that's an indicator to us of something very important. The law, A, cannot bring righteousness, and there's a very specific reason for that. And the reason is because we can't keep it. It's not that you keep some of the law. All of us keep some part of the law, uh, at least on some regular basis. Maybe today I'm keeping this part of the law, but tomorrow I screw it up, and tomorrow I'm keeping maybe a different part of the law. That's not how it works. You have to keep the whole law to be righteous. Well, that's something nobody's ever done. Paul would say in Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's nobody who is righteous by the law. The law brings wrath. Why? Because we can't keep it. So therefore, all that the law can do is condemn us. 
since we can't keep it, all it can do is point out how we failed. Okay, so the law only brings wrath. And Paul says, the truth of the matter is, is if there was no law ever given, then it would be hard to point out where you'd violated it, right? And so the law exists really just to point out our violation of it. This standard of God's righteousness has always existed, even outside of space and time. In eternity, Satan fell because of pride in his heart. He rebelled, right? And so there was an existing standard of righteousness that emanated from God himself that was violated by Satan and the angels that ultimately fell with him. In space and time, when the law wasn't given, it didn't mean nobody violated the law. It just meant that we weren't really clear on all the precepts of the law. We didn't really understand all of what righteousness meant. So God gives the law so that we can have a better sense of what that is. Again, not that we thought we could, I mean, not that people didn't think they could keep it, but it wasn't given so that we would think we could keep it and be right with God, but rather just the opposite. Here, earthlings, you know, uh, people, humans, uh, God gives the law here so you'll not see, yes, I can make it, but rather, wow, I didn't realize I was blowing it so badly. Not just blowing it, but horrendously, horrifically, horribly blowing it. That's what the law does. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace. Therefore, again, we always see a therefore, we stop and ask what it's there for. Therefore, since the law can't save us but can only bring wrath, therefore, it has to be a faith. It's by faith that it might be according to grace. Now remember, grace is fully the gift of God, right? Like Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. It's not of works, it's the gift of God. Grace is the gift of God to us. It is completely different than works. It is not a gift if you're giving it to yourself. That's not a gift. It's a gift when somebody gives it to you, something you didn't have before, now it's yours, but it's given to you. Okay, it is a gift. Uh, and it's according to grace, and it's a gift. So it doesn't say it's a gift there, I'm saying it's a gift, but so that the promise might be sure, okay, that the promise might be certain, absolute, that you might know it without a question, without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, it might be according to grace, so the promise might be sure and certain to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of all. Now, this begins to bring in another whole thing. It's not just that this gift was given to Israel ethnically, nationally. They are the first recipients of it. As a matter of fact, when Jesus himself came as the fulfillment of the law, by whom God's grace could be seen in its fullness through what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he did, uh, John says he came first to his own, but his own refused, uh, rejected him, right? But to all of those who did receive him, who believed in his name, they had the right to become children of God. Not born of the flesh or the will of man, but of the will of God. Paul is essentially building off of that idea, um, springboarding on this truth that this grace was first ultimately intended for God's own chosen people, but it was never intended to solely be for God's chosen people. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah... Uh, chapter 50, I always get this wrong, I always say 55, I think it's actually 56. Um, Isaiah 56, there is a call to those who are outside the commonwealth of Israel. Let me just read a, 
just a second, uh, a couple of a verse from it. Um, uh, uh, where was it here? I didn't put this down first, but I should have. Um, here we go. Um, it is chapter 56. Uh, verse 3, Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Interesting hint in the passage there. Again, that's Isaiah 56, starting in verse 3. First off, there is the, the, the mention here that there is, the, when he says the foreigner, those who are not of the commonwealth of Israel. Don't let the foreigner who keeps my Sabbath, who, who honors me, who walks in my ways, think that he's separated. Now remember, this is still under the old covenant. So the idea is that that sense of, of believing and trusting the Lord is shown through that obedience. This is where the crux was. They thought their obedience is what earned it their salvation but no in the same way somebody who is a Jew or a Gentile who comes to the Lord and 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 just objectively outwardly keeps uh, those things that God has said they would be it would be demonstrating that they were part of now of God's family even though they weren't ethnically nationally born into it in the New Testament we have something very similar we have sort of a common thread that continues through as a matter of fact there is um, on the one hand, what is called the, the scarlet thread of redemption that runs through scripture, that uh, continually uh, leads us to the person and work of Christ. But what is that person and work, what is the person and work of Christ ultimately culminate in, but the grace of God being opened up to all, to be received freely by faith? This is, this whole idea of, um, of the blending of law and grace is such a massive misunderstanding of the purposes and plans of God through Scripture. Um, Paul is going to great lengths to pointing out the fact that before Moses was ever given the law, it was by faith. It was through grace by faith. That has always been the way that anyone who has ever been saved has been saved. Literally, not a single human being in all of humanity's history has ever been righteous by keeping the law. We have to let that sink in. You're not going to do it, trust me. I didn't do it, Paul didn't do it. The only person who did was who? Christ himself. Therefore, he was able to take our sins upon himself because he who knew no sin was made to be sin for our sakes, on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I find myself quoting that passage a lot. That is such an important thing for us to get our minds around. So, okay, so as we continue through here. Um, Therefore, it is, by, it is a faith that it might be according to, the gra to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who, or who, like Abraham, believed, uh, who is the father of us all. And as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations, um, and, and in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. In other words, Abraham was old. 
He was incapable of giving Sarah a, a child. And Sarah was old. She wasn't able to give birth to a child. So they were beyond their childbearing years. And so God was able to do something out of what was seemingly impossible. And Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Uh, and so this promise that so his descendants would be, and again, as we pointed out, Genesis 12, 15, 17, there's also a part of the promise relates specifically to the land as well. Why am I saying that so much? Well, because out of this discussion and in the pre previous uh, discussions we've had as well, there is a movement among Christians today that seek to separate national ethnic Israel from all of this, that they've been replaced by the church, true Israel, spiritual Israel, as Paul talks about. However, the mistake in that thinking is in thinking that somehow both things cannot be true at the same time, that God does not still require, is not still required under his own promises, his own unilateral covenant with Abraham, uh, that somehow he no longer needs to demonstrate that faithfulness to Abraham, not just through his children, but to the land itself. It's, it's often in the forgetting of the promises about the land that this mistake is made. But it's the land helps us understand that God is going to be faithful to his actual covenant people. They're in the land now because that's a fulfillment of the literal promises of God. And Paul in Romans 11, we'll get there, we'll spend time on this when we get there as well. But Paul sort of hangs our ability to trust in God's faithfulness toward us in the new covenant on his faithfulness to his people in the old covenant. And I challenge you to read Romans 11 and see that. Um, so God is Paul here is pointing to Abraham and the promises made to him. But from those promises, not only are those promises only to Israel nationally, ethnically, but there's also this bringing in of the many nations, those who are not necessarily ethnically Israel, but those who are of the Gentiles. In other words, whether Jew or Gentile, we look to Abraham as the father of faith and the father of our faith, uh, the one who was called by God by grace and who believed. And so this is now, uh, again, uh, or as Paul continues to make that argument. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Again, they were beyond childbearing years, but Abraham did not really consider that. Now, if you look at the story of Abraham and Sarah, Sarah laughs and, and God sort of, you know, the Lord calls her on it. Says, why'd you laugh? Well, I didn't laugh. Yeah, you did. Uh, it's kind of a funny little story. Well, Abraham also was sort of in a bit of disbelief about it, but apparently it wasn't that he didn't think God could do it, but something like Mary in a way. You know, it's like, well, how can this be? You know, it's, it, it appears to be that kind of thing on Abraham's behalf. But he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, verse 20, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. Now, we claim that promise a lot of times personally, and that's not unfair. That's not wrong. But recognize that God is going to be faithful to complete in what he promised Abraham. He's going to perform that, which he's promised. He did that both in Abraham's life right then in those moments, but one day he will also fulfill those promises in their ultimate sense as well. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Again, he believed, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. In other words, we can appropriate these truths personally as they are intended to be. 
It's funny, later on in Romans 16, Paul says that uh, the things that were written before written for our learning. Uh, 15 or 16, let me look at that real quick. Again, my, my brain sometimes in remembering exact addresses can get a little sketchy sometimes. So take comfort in that, by the way, if you struggle with your memory. Um, got a lot of things that stay there, but, but there are also things that... Uh, um, it's chapter 15. I was in chapter 16 for a different thing yesterday. But um, chapter 15, verse 4, where he says, Whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. It's important to remember that these things that are written, the Old Testament is what Paul would have been talking about at that point. These things were written for our learning, that we through the patience and endurance of the scriptures might have hope. So we study the Old Testament. We understand what it means uh, so that we can better understand what the New Testament means. Well, here, uh, it was written not just for Abraham's sake, but like so many of the things written in the Scripture, context is always important. We don't just randomly, blindly just apply things to ourselves. But here, Paul is saying that this truth about Abraham's being saved through his simply believing the promises of God and that being accounted to him for righteousness, this is also for us. In other words, we come the same way as Abraham. That's a really profound thing. It's not just that Abraham is somehow this one character in the Old Testament that something special happened to and things only matter for him. No, it's because they matter for him that they also matter for us. Now again, we don't just sort of take everything in the Old Testament and apply it. Like we're not under dietary laws. We're not under the law at all uh, anymore. Paul goes on to discuss that and, and help us understand it. But we do recognize that there are principles and there are outright promises that can be appropriated when it contextually fits. Here, Paul is giving us one of those now. Uh, this idea of being saved by faith, it's being imputed, righteousness being imputed. And imputed, again, appears here in verse 24. It's also for us, for it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the death. Uh, from dead, the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of or for the purpose of our justification. And so, like Abraham believed God and it was accounted him for righteousness, so in exactly the same way, Paul is saying, when we put our trust in Christ, who, as he said, was delivered up because of our offenses, in other words, our sins are the reason Jesus went to the cross, not just... Uh, other people's sins, or not just Israel's uh, rejection of him at the time, our sins have put him, put him on the cross, and he was raised up because of our justification. In other words, we are justified because he died and rose from the dead. And our belief in that is what ultimately uh, uh, brings God to impute to us that righteousness. Now, Paul in chapter 4 said that faith is not a work. You know, believing those who don't have works but believe shall be justified. So he makes a distinction between works and faith. Um, and, and it is by faith that that righteousness is then appropriated. So praise the Lord. Uh, again, there is a lot to consider, to meditate on. I'll use the word contemplate. I don't mean it like the weird New Agey sorts of things. I mean to deeply consider and to think about, not to empty our minds of all thought, but to flood our minds with thoughts about these things. These are worthy of our consideration, worthy of our deep consideration, contemplation, meditation, and ultimately adoration that flows from that. And so, um, but again, I, I mean that in the, in the biblical sense of the word. T take heed to what has just been said there and let it 
fall deeply into your heart and let it evoke worship to the God who has made it so that all we can do is believe. Not just all we have to do like it's some easy thing. It's not always an easy thing. It grates against our pride. But it was not an easy thing for Jesus. He did all the hard work. He did all the heavy lifting. He took the penalty upon himself. He died on the cross. He rose again. We believe that for our justification. And it's just such a beautiful gift of God to make that available to us. So praise the Lord. Father, we thank you and praise you that Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he has made me white as snow. Thank you for this, Lord. We praise you and bless you for all of your goodness and grace toward us. Help us to read these words and all that will follow as we continue through this book and to just rejoice, to rest, to respond with adoration and praise. You who has set us free. Thank you, Lord. We praise you and bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.